Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. This is Laura Harris-Hales. I'm here today with David Pulsifer, celebrating our 100th episode of Latter-day Saint Perspectives podcast. Welcome, David. Glad to have you here. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? I'm a product of Utah, went to Brigham Young University, and also to the University of Minnesota for my doctoral degree in American Studies. And I've been teaching at BYU-Idaho for the last 21 years. I was talking to Patrick Mason a couple weeks ago, and he was telling me about an exciting project you're working on. You want Mm -hmm. to talk about that? Yes, this is an ongoing project that Patrick and I have been working on since... Well, we first dreamed it up in 2011, so we're going on seven years now. We hope that eventually this will actually get completed, but he and I have been working on an attempt to define a Latter-day Saint theology of peace and nonviolence that's been a really richly rewarding collaboration. Much of what I do has grown out of that collaborative effort. Our discussion today is based on your award-winning paper that I heard you deliver a couple months ago at Utah State University for the Book of Mormon Studies Conference. The Myth of Redemptive Violence, the Book of Mormon's Subtle and Overlooked Critique. And I just have to tell you, you blew me out of the water. I've never been in a presentation where someone just showed pictures and no words on their PowerPoints. And that was so incredible and so emotion-filled to look at those pictures as you were talking about violence. And one in particular that we'll talk about later, I've thought about a lot. And it's really made me want to go back to the Book of Mormon and look at it with a different eye, which is probably what one of your goals was in writing this paper, wasn't it? Well, that's exactly the goal, so I'm glad to hear that. It was a real pleasure to write it, and um, when I do my presentations, I like to add a lot of visuals, because if the argument isn't sound, at least people have nice, pretty things to look at. (laughs) (laughs) Good strategy. We often talk about the Book of Mormon having plain and precious truths in it, but... In the last 20, 30 years, we've had a lot of scholarship that's taken a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, and we're seeing it's a lot more complex than just being plain and precious. The thing that is most clear about the Book of Mormon is that it centers us on Jesus Christ, and it is, as its subtitle says, another testament of Jesus Christ. And its clarity in regards to who Christ is and his role as our Savior and Redeemer, I think, clarifies so much confusion in terms of what's maybe not as clear in other elements of Christianity. In that respect, I think the Book of Mormon is very plain and very precious, but there's so much depth to it that we have not yet fully explored. What then do you think is one of the most misunderstood parts of the narrative? 
Well, I think that's where the Book of Mormon gets complex. When it comes to just simple, plain teaching about Jesus Christ, it's easy to understand the words of Nephi. It's easy to understand the words of Alma, Amulek, Benjamin, and then, of course, the words of the Savior himself when he appears in uh, the 11th chapter of Third Nephi. But when it comes to so many other truths in the Book of Mormon, they have to be inferred from the text, from the narrative. And I think the narrative in particular is a very complex narrative, and drawing lessons out of it becomes a very complex process. And in particular, a Book of Mormon that is filled with scenes of battles and conflict, violence, the lessons regarding violence and conflict are often easy to miss because they aren't explicitly called out for us. So we have to read the text and the narrative closely and look for the patterns in the story to understand what the text is actually trying to teach us about violence. Do you think in a way we're a little bit dismissive of the violence? I know I heard growing up a lot, oh, Mormon, he was a warrior. He loved those war chapters, and that's why he put them in. That's why they're there. And when we get to the war chapters, we're like, oh, okay, battle this, battle that. Let's go on. I think it, it's very easy to be dismissive of them, and there's a number of people who have tried to point out a number of very, I think, reasonable ways of making the wars uh, metaphorical about our own spiritual struggles and that makes them relevant in, to us in terms of how we protect ourselves spiritually, how we defend our families from the potential onslaughts of evil and temptation. But then I think it is easy to just simply dismiss them as something that a warrior historian is interested in and included for what appears to be no particularly relevant purpose. But I think if we read them a little more closely, I think they're trying to teach us something about violence itself. That's why I would encourage us to pay closer attention to what the violence is doing in the text and what it's teaching us about our own world, which is also filled with violence, if not always directly, often indirectly in terms of our media and the stories that we tell. And so I think sometimes we can be dismissive of it, not because we think Mormon just threw in a bunch of war chapters for us, but we're dismissive because we're just so surrounded with it ourselves that we just think, oh, same old, same old. We've seen this story before. Know how it ends. Know what's going on. Know who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. We know which violence is good, which violence is bad, and we can we think we can sort it out fairly easily when, in fact, I think it's a much more complex thing to sort out. I don't think we have any cultural connection with it either. Mm -hmm. It seems just so out there compared to our personal experiences. Mm -hmm. We mentioned before how in the last 30 years we've had so much scholarship on the Book of Mormon. Outside of the work that you and Patrick are doing, how much has been done on the violence in the Book of Mormon and what it's actually supposed to be telling us? Well, there's been a surprising amount of work on warfare on the, in the Book of Mormon, but most of it has been looking at what are the tactics of the generals? What's the 
timing of the battles? How do the strategies fit within ancient forms of warfare? Often the, the battles are used as ways of demonstrating the historicity of the book. These battles are similar to these types of ancient battles as well. We become interested in, in the battles for the sake of the battles themselves. We become interested in the battles as evidence of interesting connections to the Old Testament and, and so on, but we don't actually look at, the, at violence generally. Uh, now, there are, f- there are a few people who have. Uh, most of the people who are looking at the violence more broadly have a tendency to divide into two camps. Those who see the text as a text that is condemning violence generally, they see the violence in the text as a warning to us, and they see the violence as the depravity that often happens in the violence as evidence of why violence is wrong and is evil. And then you have the other side, which sees the text as essentially a manifesto for just warfare and for the necessity of violence in defending families and faith. And those two groups tend to talk at each other as, is the book a, a pacifist manifesto or a just war manifesto? Most of them are not looking at it very carefully for perhaps other lessons that might be drawn from it than just good violence, good or bad. What you're saying is that they've concentrated on one element of the violence, and they've not necessarily covered the whole narrative of what's happening because they're so focused on this one little aspect of the violence. Can you give us some examples of that? Well, I think that we have a tendency to read the violence in the Book of Mormon as justifying our modern assumptions that violence is something that works and that it's necessary, that it's fundamentally what I would call redemptive, meaning it saves people, saves people from their enemies, and it saves society by laying a foundation where peace can be established. And we live in a world where that essence is shown in all of our movies in terms of once the the bad guy is dispatched through violence, then peace reigns and people are saved. And so we have a tendency to see violence as something that is fundamentally redemptive and saving, and we bring that to the text. And when we read the text, we just assume that that's what the text is teaching us as well, that the text is teaching us that violence saves. And this becomes particularly easy for us to do because it seems, as we read, that God is constantly intervening into the violence and helping what we would just shorthand call the good guys, and that he is punishing the bad guys through the good guys' violence. And so we have a tendency to read that and say, this reinforces what I believe, which is violence works. If it didn't work, God wouldn't help. And therefore, because God is intervening so often in the text, according to the narration, that it must mean that violence is the answer to whatever threat we may be facing. I think a good way to picture what you are just saying is to bring up one of the visuals that you used in your PowerPoint, Mm -hmm. a picture that everybody is familiar with, with Captain Moroni standing there with the title of Liberty 
around all his soldiers holding arrows. We've always thought that was a glorious scene. Here's this man carried up by God to do righteous battle. But you kind of twisted that in your PowerPoint. You want to share that with our listeners? Sure. I, it's an image that I placed next to it, which is a, a modern rendition of the Arnold Freeberg painting, which everyone is fairly familiar with, especially since it was a part of the official Book of Mormon for many, many years. And the image is of a, a modern-day American soldier in exactly the same stance as Moroni. And instead of being surrounded by, you know, in the original is appears to be an audience of likely men holding up their swords in kind of pledge to, to, to fight, instead of swords poking up, it's automatic rifles. And the flag, instead of being the flag of the title of liberty is the American flag, although there is also a smaller flag underneath it that has the words of the title of liberty on it. And it's a, a modern soldier. It's drawn in a kind of comic book style and uh, was one that I found circulating on the Internet. It's as, quite shocking yeah. and moving. It makes yeah. you think about it a lot because the cartoon one, is there's nothing wonderful about that image of that American soldier, <laughs> militia man, looking there with those automatic machine guns. You're like, oh, wait, what am I celebrating here? Well, it is fascinating because in, many people do look at that and see that as wonderful. They see that as a great celebration of what a modern-day Moroni would look like, and that is the image they have of Moroni, and it's the image that they have perhaps of themselves as defenders of liberty in the same vein as Moroni and that it, a kind of quasi-military uh, approach to defense. Our image of Moroni has been deeply shaped by that image. Uh, our sense of who Moroni is has been deeply shaped by Freeberg's painting. And then that sense of who Moroni is has deeply shaped how we think of violence in the modern era, and a particularly violence that is used in defense of essential liberties and families and faith, which of course is what Moroni is defending with his efforts in the title of liberty. But there's more to it, mm -hmm. and that's what your article gets to. Yes. The Book of Mormon is not always as overt in its message as mm -hmm. we'd like it to be. So how do you suggest we approach a nonviolent look at the Book of Mormon? As I've argued in the paper, I think the Book of Mormon narrative is like a very intricate tapestry in that we, when we look at it, we can very easily look at it and see only the things that we want to see we tend to bring our own biases to the patterns, and then those patterns that we have biases to see will emerge out of them. I think the Book of Mormon narrative is actually more plain than we sometimes give it credit for, but we are blind to it because our own attitudes and biases about violence tend to shape the text for us instead of letting the patterns emerge out of the text naturally. So we need some way of refocusing and being able to see the patterns more clearly. 
it's my uh, my sense that that is provided for us already in uh, particularly in the Doctrine and Covenants section 98. The Doctrine and Covenants revelation was given in August of 1832 provides the most comprehensive and explicit description of what I'm calling the rules of engagement uh, when it comes to violence. There's no other place in all of Mormon scriptural canon that I know of, in, in all of Latter-day Saint scriptural canon that I know of, that goes into the depth of description regarding what the ethics of violence should be for disciples of Jesus Christ. And so if we take the 98th section of the Doctrine and Covenants and apply it as a way of understanding the violence going on in the Book of Mormon, then the patterns start to sort themselves out a little more clearly for us. What kind of things did you find in DNC 98 as you were examining it? So DNC 98 has this remarkable description of violence at several different levels, at per personal level and even at the societal level, in which the Lord lays out the rules. And the rules are essentially this, that we must bear patiently the abuses of our enemies, and after three times of being smitten by our enemies, then we are justified, according to the revelation, we're justified in striking back, but only after three times and after warning the person who is coming against us. The fascinating part of it is that that has been well known for a long time, and people cite it all the time as evidence that violence is, is justified, and it certainly is, according to the to the revelation. But the revelation goes further in saying that not only is that an option, but it says, if thou wilt spare him, meaning the enemy, thou shalt be rewarded for thy righteousness and also thy children and thy children's children unto the third and fourth generation. That's an interesting promise because the Lord has just said that if your enemy comes against you or your children or your children's children to the third and fourth generation. This phrase, third and fourth generation, shows up repeatedly in the Revelation. And in essence, the Lord is saying, if you strike back, I will help you to the third and fourth generation. But if you spare the enemy, then I will bless you unto the third and fourth generation. And so what we miss sometimes is the Lord is basically telling us we have a choice. Do you want my help in striking back for three or four generations? Or do you want to be blessed for three or four generations? And if you start to think about it very long, you begin to realize that choice is really a choice between one good thing, the Lord's help in a violent conflict, and a better thing, which is to be blessed. Because if we choose the violent retaliation, we may, in essence, be dooming our children to needing the Lord's help for three or four generations because most violence tends to come back and create cycles of retaliation and conflict, which would require long-term assistance. And on the other hand, we could choose to spare and or to forgive or to absorb the violence and thereby be blessed ourselves and for our children to be blessed for three or four generations. So they're not exactly equal, 
And that, to me, is the fascinating lens, because once we start saying, okay, if violence is a choice and it's not required by the Lord, that he is, in essence, saying, I will help you or I um, fight or I will bless you in some other way, then if we apply that to the Book of Mormon, we can say, well, what as, as different important characters in the Book of Mormon make different choices regarding violence, does that play out? Do we see blessings to the third and fourth generation, or do we see assistance from the Lord to the third and fourth generation, but also conflict into the third and fourth generation? And I think the Book of Mormon shows us that that's exactly what happens. Uh, The characters who choose violence do get the Lord's assistance, but they also end up creating cycles of violence that go on and in some ways go on for much longer than three or four generations. Of course, each generation makes that choice. They push that horizon further and further out. Can you give us an example from the text? Probably the most well-known is Nephi, the very first prophet in the Book of Mormon, who tells the story of killing Laban. And the way he tells the story, he says, I was constrained by the Spirit to do this. If we just read that too quickly, and if we don't read it in light of Doctrine and Covenants 98, then that sense of kind of requirement comes in. But if we read section 98, the most fascinating line to me is that immediately after laying out the two choices, the voice of the Lord says, Behold, this is the law I gave unto my servant Nephi. He singles him out. And in singling him out, he seems to be making a very important comment on the way Nephi has told his story. And what that seems to be revealing is that Nephi may not have told the entire story here, that maybe, in fact, he did have a choice. He had a choice to spare Laban, get the plates without having to decapitate him. But that in his killing of Laban, he is justified according to the principles of Section 98. But he also, in killing Laban and then taking the sword and taking that with him into the wilderness as kind of, in some ways, symbolic of that choice that he made, he then creates a a context in many ways in which his children will live by that sword for generations to come. And we see that play itself out as he uses that sword then in his conflict with his brothers as he makes replicas of it for his children to use against the children of his brothers. And they, as we all know, become the principal antagonists to one another over the course of the text. You realize that's going to be a radical reading for some people listening to this podcast, a rethinking of that story. I was fascinated by your discussion about the sort of Laban being part of Nephite material culture. It almost became a sacred relic this weapon of violence. Do you want to speak to that? Well, it certainly does in the sense that, again, the narrative here is fascinating. Nephi doesn't tell us that he takes the sword. He mentions only that he carries the brass plates with him into the wilderness to his father, Lehi, and that he takes Zoram. He says, we take the plates and we take Zoram and we return to my father. We don't know that he also has the sword with him until the family splits up he flees into the wilderness, and then he begins fashioning 
replicas of the sword of Laban. And it's that point in the narrative that Nephi lets us know. So there's, for some reason, he doesn't want us to know or doesn't feel comfortable letting us know that he's taken the sword until later. But then at that point, now that the family has broken up and the sword becomes, for Nephi, the way that he's going to resist and keep uh, resist his brother's aggressions and keep his people protected, that sword becomes a sacred relic of, of sorts and is passed from generation to generation. We know that Benjamin uses the sword to fight the Lamanites, and we know that it's passed on. And, of course, we also know from Joseph Smith that it becomes a part of what is in the Hill Cumorah when he goes to get the plates, and that the sword of Laban is shown to the three witnesses. So this is an interesting emblem because it seems to represent, along with the record, in some ways, the two choices, the choices of the word and the choice of the sword. And maybe God is saying to us that we have that same choice today. Will we live by the word or we live by the sword? Uh, And the Nephites lived by both, and they tended to emphasize one or the other at different times in their histories. Yeah, the way the sword becomes an important part of the Nephite inheritance is a fascinating part of the record. I love that interpretation because traditionally I think we've thought of the sword of Laban as representing God sparing his people. Both Paul and Moroni talk about a more excellent way for Nephi would have, would have been a better choice in your mind. Well, this is count using counterfactual history, which is always dangerous, and we don't know exactly what would have happened if Nephi had chosen a different way. Many people try to justify Nephi's violence by saying there was no other way, that if he had not killed Laban, that all sorts of horrible things would have happened. Of course, that's speculative as well. We don't know. It is certain that in killing Laban, uh, Nephi is enacting violence in a way that will make it impossible for his family ever to return from the wilderness. And they are in some ways forced now to remain permanently at large. The question of what it might have happened if he had not, we can speculate in several different veins. Might he have tied up Laban, left him in a closet somewhere, and spared his life and still managed to, make, to get the plates and return to his father? There's all sorts of ways in which Nephi might have spared Laban. Maybe there was even a nonviolent way, a way of love and charity, which is, of course, what Paul's talking about when he talks about a more excellent way. Is there a way that Nephi could have used that and had Laban voluntarily surrendered the plates to him uh, and won him over somehow? Laban certainly seems to be a difficult person. But that possibility is not beyond, you know, speculation, uh, if we're going to speculate. So there's all sorts of ways in which sparing Laban in varying degrees might have left Nephi with a much less traumatic legacy that he certainly seems to be grappling with even when he's writing about this decades later. And certainly would have, according to Section 98, would have then qualified him for blessings himself and to his children and his children's children that might have reverberated through the generations. Maybe 
in learning how to spare Laban, he learned how to have to work more effectively with his difficult, equally difficult brothers that might have affected a reconciliation there that, that would have kept the family together, uh, at least for another generation or two before somebody else split them up. We don't know, but uh, Section 98 has that tantalizing hint that there was another way for Nephi and that that other way did carry with it blessings that were multi-generational. I've thought about this example quite a bit in your article because going back to this misreading of the Book of Mormon, I think we misread that as the Lord will make us do things sometimes that seem wrong but they're right if the Lord tells us to do them, even though we intuitively know they're wrong. And so we've all read the story and we're like, how can this be right? Well, and that's where I think that our instincts are right when we read it. The idea that the Lord would require this bloody deed of his son, especially when it involves the violence of one of his children against another of his children seems to be incongruous with our sense of who God is. The best comparative example is probably the story of Abraham and Isaac and the requirement to sacrifice Isaac. But of course, the difference between those two stories is that in Abraham's case, there's a ram in the thicket. There's a ram in the thicket, and he's not required to go through with it, whereas Nephi is. We can, I suppose, approach the story saying, well, Laban deserves it in a way that Isaac doesn't. But that, you know, how do we gauge that ourselves? I think Nephi, and, and, and this is where I think Grant Hardy has done us a good service. He's, he's demonstrated that Nephi is a really masterful t- storyteller, and one of the things he's masterful at is that avoiding sometimes some really difficult moments. So the moment that he returns to the Lehi with the plates, Grant Hardy does a masterful job of demonstrating how the way Nephi tells the story, he avoids the whole problem of how Lehi actually responded to Nephi's report of what he had done. And we never really find out how Lehi feels about the fact that his son has killed a man. And the way he tells the story avoids that difficulty. I suspect that in his telling of the story of coming upon Laban in the streets that he's also, in this case, avoiding a certain unpleasant truth, which the Lord supplies for us in section 98, which is there was another choice and that a lot of what happened here, Nephi has to kind of own as his own choice and that he would prefer to think of it as someone else made me do this when in fact he made a choice, a, a perfectly justified and therefore righteous choice I should emphasize. But, but not one that didn't have ramifications, is your point, right? Exactly as good of a choice as that was, not the best choice that might have been made in that situation. In other words, there was a choice that carried even higher blessings and righteousness attached to it, according to section 98. Nephi here seems to be avoiding telling us that part of the story. So I think our instincts tell us there's that we don't have the whole story here, and that's why we recoil a bit when we get to it. We have DNC 98. Have you found any other tools 
that listeners can use as a lens when studying the Book of Mormon? Well, I think DNC 98 is the, is the most important lens, and because it connects it to Nephi, it becomes a really good lens for us to interpret the Book of Mormon. But there is another lens as well, and that's within the book itself. Well, there's actually two places in the Book of Mormon that I think we have to look at as ways of helping us interpret the text. And one of them is in Alma chapter 48, which is right in the middle of Mormon's soaring praise of Captain Moroni, well-deserved praise for Moroni's righteousness and desires to preserve his people. And in the middle of that, he mentions that the Nephites had been taught certain things about how to approach violence. And so it gives us a window into how the Nephites saw their options. So we know from section 98 that they have options. And when it comes to which options to take, Alma 48 gives us this line that the Nephites believed that if they were faithful in keeping the commandments of God, that he would prosper them in the land, yea, warn them to flee or to prepare for war according to their danger, and also that God would make it known unto them whether they should go to defend themselves against their enemies, and by so doing, the Lord would deliver them. So the Nephites have deep faith in God's ability to deliver them, and they believe that will come in generally one of two ways. He will either warn them to flee or he will warn them to prepare for war. What I think we miss about this lens is that we then, we, we don't go back to the text and say, how many times does God do each of these things? How many times in the text do we find him explicitly warning people to flee? And how many times in the text do we find him explicitly warning them to prepare for war? And the surprising thing when we begin that kind of analysis is that we find that God warns people to flee six, maybe even seven times, depending on how you read the text. Very explicit warnings of groups to flee from Lehi to Nephi to the first Mosiah to the people of Alma in the land of Helam and the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and Omer in the book of Ether. All of them are warned to flee. If you look for a moment in which God says in the text, prepare for war, you can't find one. And that, to me, was one of the most surprising things was to, as I went back and tried to compare them, I couldn't find a moment where the Lord says, there's danger coming, prepare for war. We do find lots of instances in which God helps the Nephites in a war, but it's usually a war, well, it's always a war, that they have already started or have has been brought upon them but it's they're never warned to prepare for war ahead of time beforehand so that's another lens that we can use to look at well what does that mean then if the text itself shows god constantly warning people to flee and never warning them to prepare to kill what conclusions have you come to about god's attitude toward war through these comparisons well, looking at that, it seems to me that Doctrine and Covenants 98 bears out. God will help people who choose justified self-defense. Examples of divine help in the narrative demonstrate that God fulfills that promise. He comes to the aid of these armies over and over and over again. There's a reason that people use violence. They learn very early on the playground that 
it is ultimately quite an effective tool. How does the Book of Mormon address the argument that violence is the only strategy that ultimately works? Well, there's two ways in which the Book of Mormon demonstrates the effectiveness of violence and the effectiveness of other strategies. One of them is in the short term. So you have many examples of short-term effectiveness of war. Uh, Moroni does protect his Nephite community. Benjamin protects his Nephite community. Nephi protects his Nephite community, right? Each of these warrior prophets use violence in the form usually of armies to protect their people. And yet we also have examples of short-term effectiveness of nonviolent techniques. The frequent examples of flight in the Book of Mormon demonstrate that flight is an effective tool to protect people. And in addition to that, we have examples of loving confrontation, actually, that is very effective. One of my favorite examples is a beloved story, which is the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, and we talk a lot about the burying of their swords, and we talk about the way in which they go out and meet their enemies on the battlefield and convert those enemies by their deaths. One of the things we often fail to notice, first of all, we fail to notice how they go out to meet their enemies. They don't just wait for them. They don't wait in their homes and cower to be slaughtered. They go out and confront them in a very brave, fearless sort of way. It's that fearlessness, it's that confrontational part of it that actually makes what they do quite effective. If they had cowered in their homes, they probably wouldn't have had the same effect on their enemies as they did by going out and very bravely meeting them without any weapons. The other thing we fail to highlight many times is the fact that their strategy actually protects their community. They go out and throw their bodies as shields to their families, and in doing that, they stop the violence. The Lamanites stop, and even the hard-hearted Amalekites and Amulonites who are not converted stop their violence. And that is a really salient point, that the nonviolence works, and although they lose 1,005, it's one of the lowest casualty rates recorded in the Book of Mormon. Moroni's armies commonly lost thousands of people in battles, and here the anti-Nephi-Lehi's protect their community with losing only a thousand. As Mormon points out, all of them were righteous, all of them go to heaven, nobody goes to hell that day, none of the attackers die, all of the movement is towards God. It's a remarkable moment. But even though that's a remar- the, probably the most remarkable example, there's actually other examples of unarmed confrontation. The people of Limhi go out and meet their attackers at one point without weapons, and the attackers are pacified, it says, towards them, and they had compassion upon them. Alma, in the land of Helam, goes out to meet the invading Lamanite army, also without weapons. Uh, even the priests of, of Noah put their wives forward to convince their Lamanite brethren not to attack. And so we have multiple instances in the Book of Mormon where people are using not just flight, but actual compassionate confrontation that in one way or another stops the the attack. 
So those are all short-term examples. And then when we have long-term examples of uh, the ways in which uh, the effectiveness of violence versus other strategies. And one of the things that's, to me, striking is that although Moroni protects his people, it doesn't ever establish lasting peace. There's always going to be a war a few years later and another war a few years after that and another war a few years after that. So the violence is effective, but it seems to be only temporarily effective. And the only kind of peace that seems to be maintainable peace is peace that's done through other means. It's not achieved through violent self-defense. It's achieved through usually some pretty remarkable nonviolent invaders like the Sons of Mosiah going deep into Lamanite territory. I love the phrase you yeah. used, a special forces unit. Yeah, yeah. these are a nonviolent special forces unit. They are invaders, and the political implications of what they're doing shouldn't be overlooked. These are the sons of the king. These are the Nephite princes, and they are invading Lamanite territory. But they're invading with love. They're invading with selfless service, and they are consecrating themselves to the Lamanite people in a way that wins many of their hearts and, in the end, affects a permanent reconciliation between that group of Lamanites and the Nephite community as they become integrated into the, ultimately integrated into the Nephite community. That's, of course, a fantastic example, but one of my favorite examples is even later than that, where the Lamanites, under the inspiration of some Nephite dissenters, invade Nephite territory and take the almost the entire territory from the Nephite people. They drive them all the way up to the land of Bountiful. They take over the land of Zarahemla. They take over everything. And Moronihha, the son of Moroni, using the the full resources of the state and the military, claws back year after year. He whittles away at that invasion, that occupied territory, and gets about half the territory back. And then he can't get any further, and he gives up. He says, we can't, you know, can't do any more than this. And it's at that moment in the text that we get two unarmed invaders again, this time uh, Nephi and Lehi, the brothers, who go first to the occupied territories in Zarahemla, convert 8,000 people. Then they go deep into Lamanite, traditional Lamanite land, to the land of Nephi, and there are captured, and they allow themselves to be abused. And then this miraculous moment in the prison with the pillars of fire and the quiet voice, you know, as if it was a whisper coming from heaven, this remarkable love and spirit that they bring with them into the territory affects this amazing conversion. And out of that, the Lamanites go forth and eventually, and, and this is one of those moments in the text where I just, I, I wish, I just cry, I, I cry out for more detail because in one verse, it says they return all the lands to the Nephites. And there's got to be a fantastic story behind all of that. But two unarmed invaders accomplish what years, even generations of conflict couldn't do. And from that point on, the Lamanites and the Nephites are never at war with one another uh, until long after the time of Christ's visit. The conflict after that shifts to the Gadianton robbers. But the Lamanites and the Nephites never go to war again. And so it is a permanent reconciliation between these two communities, and it's accomplished by two people without any weapons. 
How effective were violent measures against the Gadiant and robbers that you just mentioned? Well, that, again, I think is fascinating because the story seems to show us over and over again kind of comparisons. So we get the comparison of Moroni's very valiant and justified violence and the way he protects his community, but we see that it's only temporary. Then we see these long-term effects by these unarmed invaders. And then we get a similar kind of comparison that goes on with the Gadiant and robbers. We see repeated efforts to go up into the hills and take the war to them, and almost every example of that is a failure. They get driven out of the mountains. They get driven back into their lands, and the Gadiant robbers are as strong as ever. But the two examples in which the Gadiant robbers are actually destroyed in both instances, the way it says it in the text, it says that they're destroyed, but they're destroyed not because they are annihilated. They're destroyed because they are essentially transformed from enemies into friends, and it's done through conversion. And both the Lamanites and the Nephites do it. They do it at separate moments in the text, but each of them do it. And in both cases, they eliminate the threat by transforming the threat into something that's friendly to them. Baptize your enemies. Don't beat them up. Exactly. Yeah. So the military efforts don't work, but the conversion efforts do. And they affect a much more long-term and ultimately sustainable kind of peace. Although with the Gadiant robbers, they're constantly reinventing themselves or, or being reinvented by others. When Christ visits the Nephites, does he speak about violence? Well, yes. As a matter of fact, he speaks very directly about violence. And of course, we get that in his sermon at the temple, as we call it, which is a a restatement of Christ's Sermon on the Mount from Matthew or the Sermon on the Plain from Luke, in which case he, in all three cases, he says the same thing, which is, He does that wonderful job of giving the old law, which is the righteous law, and gives the new law, or the higher law, the lesser and the higher. And in the old law, it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And in the new law, it is not that. It's turn the other cheek, go another mile, and instead of hating enemies, it is loving them. Do good to them, they hate you. That very direct command is, I believe, part of what Nephi was saying when Christ comes. He will tell you what to do, and you should listen to what he tells you to do. And don't harden your hearts when he fulfills the law, but be prepared for the new law. And that new law is, in many ways, already been lived by people like the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, but now Christ institutes it in a much more formal way, and his disciples take that. They seem to take it very much to heart, and they create a world in which there is no contention, in which they love their enemies. And we aren't given the details of how that all plays out, but it's very clear from Fourth Nephi that it talks about the love of God being in their hearts and that sense of love. And I think by that love we mean a very active, confrontational kind of love like the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. That kind of love transforms their society into a world in which there is no more war. And that lasts for 200 years. It's remarkable. It's built upon these precepts, not just built only on 
the remarkable person of Jesus Christ and his appearance, but it's built upon the actual precepts that he then leaves with them and which they implement into their society. David, through your research, what have you found to be the nonviolent message of the Book of Mormon? I think if I were to summarize the overall message in terms of what the Book of Mormon is saying about violence, it's that violence may be a justified choice for self-defense. I think the Book of Mormon is pretty clear on that. But, and it's the but that we often miss in the story, exerting love and even a violence-absorbing and self-sacrificing kind of love, which is, of course, the example that Jesus Christ gives, even all of this in the face of menacing threats will accomplish much more than justified violence will accomplish. So I think that's the essence of the Book of Mormon narrative. Violence may be justified, but love is the better way. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. What are your plans for this paper? Right now I'm revising it and hopes of having it published in some venue somewhere, one form or another. And uh, and then you'll let us know so we can post it on our website. I will be happy to let you know if uh, that happens in the future. Be sure to check out ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices. <laughs>